We are in Romans. We are in Romans chapter 12. And we are still in verses 9 through 21, so I would invite you to turn your copy of, in your copy of God's Word to that section. If you don't have a Bible, we, we have some Bibles located underneath the seats around you. You can grab one of those and flip that open to page 948. 948, that'll bring you to that particular section. You know, I've, been, I've called this, I've titled this, A Christian Code of Conduct. A Christian Code of Conduct. Uh, really, beloved, it's just a call to Christ-likeness. It's a call to Christ-likeness. This is what it looks like to, to live as Christ lived, to act as Christ would act or think or uh, interact with one another. This is what it looks like. Now, beloved, that is ultimately God's goal for you. We saw that as we went through the book of Romans. It's Christ-likeness. Here's a question I have for you before we just look at the text. We're just thinking through this and some stuff going on. And Is Christ-likeness your goal? Seriously, I just want to ask you. I want to be real serious with you right now. Is that your goal in life? To be conformed to his image? Well, let me ask it another way. If I were to ask those who were very close to you, who knew you well, who saw you on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, would, would they say that Christ-likeness is your goal? And if they wouldn't, then Christ-likeness is probably not your goal, beloved. That is God's goal for us. We would be wise, very wise, to make that our goal as well, okay? To make it our pursuit in life to become like Christ. He's given us a spirit. We have the spirit of God dwelling inside of us if we are truly saved. The power of sin in our lives has been broken so that we are no longer enslaved to sin. We are no longer in bondage to sin. It is no longer a master. Why? So that we might live for God so that we might conform our will to his, so that we might become more and more progressively in this life like Christ with the goal that one day we will be perfectly made like him. But that is what we are supposed to be doing, beloved, while we are here on this earth. It is part of our mission in life to be conformed to Christ's likeness. So another question I have for you is, what are you doing or allowing maybe into your life that is working against that process? Again, as, as we read through verses 9 through 21, there's a lot here, a lot we're, we're being called to do. And like I said, it's really a call to Christ-likeness. But if we're allowing things into our life that are working against Christ-likeness, then we're going to fail miserably to conform to verses 9 through 21 on a regular basis. We're going to fail. And beloved, by, by that question, what are you allowing in your life that might work against this process? I'm, I'm, I'm basically talking about sin. Sin. And uh, listen, I... I am a... I like to laugh, and I like to make people laugh. In fact, if I did believe in reincarnation, I would be a comedian in another life. <laughs> but I don't. 
But I just want to be real serious with you right now. There is a time to laugh and to rejoice and, and to make humor, but right now I want to be real serious with you, just even in what's going on maybe in the life of the church here. But sin, I want to tell you, I've told you this before, but I want to tell you right now, it's seeking to destroy you. Okay? It is seeking to ruin your life. It is seeking to put an end to any Christ-likeness that you might have in your life. And we need to be aware that we're really in a battle. Sin wants to ruin your relationships. It wants to destroy your marriages. Sin wants to divide this church. Sin wants to ruin your blood. So... Examine your life even now, even as I'm speaking to you just right now. Think, where in my life have I allowed sin to creep in and done nothing about it? If you allow it to stay there, it will ruin you. It will bring an end to peace and joy and satisfaction in the Lord. It will. We are fools sometimes. You know, there's, there's these fires that break out in our home, right? And so if a fire broke out in your home, what would you do? You would yeah, put it out, hopefully. Or I guess if it was too bad, you'd run away. But I'm just saying, if it's a small fire, you would put it out, right? But sin is constantly setting fires in our lives. Like fools sometimes, we pour gasoline on it. Don't do it, beloved. Don't do it. I heard someone say once, I think they got it from a book somewhere, a good Christian book, you need to be always, always killing sin in your life. Okay? Or it will kill you. It is out to take you down. It wants to ruin you. It wants to destroy you. So go after it, beloved. Attack it. Repent of it. Refuse to allow any place for it in your life. All right? Let's look at the text. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. 9 through 21. Apostle Paul writes these words. I've been looking at them now for several weeks. Beginning in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor. What is evil? Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, 
but overcome evil with good. Thought it would be appropriate, we haven't done this in a few messages, to do review again. Told you repetition is the mother of all learning, and so maybe this will be helpful to you if you haven't been here, if you missed a few lessons, or even if you've been here, I find it to be helpful, at least in my own life, to hear the same truths again and again, maybe slightly different ways. So I just want to take you through very quickly what we've already gone through, and then we'll continue down through this passage. The first exhortation, command, rule, the way we are to conduct our life, verse 9 is, let love be genuine. And so maybe you'll remember I said we must not turn the church into a stage on which we act as if we love or appear to love our brothers and sisters in Christ when in reality that is not the case. That's what Paul's calling us to, genuine love. So an example of that would be serving others in the body of Christ with ulterior motives. Ulterior motives, meaning it appears we have one motive, love, but that is not the motive at all. Rather, it could be something as simple as wanting to be seen serving so that person might receive kudos or praises or to look good in front of others or because they feel better about themselves when they serve someone else. And really, that should not be the motivation. None of those things, rather God calls us to give ourselves away for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ by serving them. Let it be genuine. And so when it's not genuine, we should repent. Biblical love, beloved, is unselfish. Right? And I'm just repeating to you what I've said before. It's unselfish. That's what biblical love is. It's self-giving. It's a willful devotion or a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. That's biblical love. That's the love you and I are to have for one another in the body of Christ. Let love be genuine. Two, abhor what is evil. What is that, beloved? What does that mean? You remember? What did I say? Hate all that God hates. Hate all that God hates. Make no room for evil in your life or because of love in the lives of those you say you love. Don't make any room for it. Don't enable or encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ to sin. Don't do it, beloved. That's not love. That's not love. So it's not, it's not just a matter of you being concerned about your own holiness and your own sanctification. You should be. You should be growing in those things. And you, part of that is hating evil. Allowing it to have nothing to do with your life or your thought life or your heart or your feelings or any of that. But beyond that, beloved, it is also making sure that your actions or what you're doing don't encourage others to pursue evil or to engage in sin. You and I have a responsibility to one another in the body of Christ in this area of abhorring what is evil. Not only in our lives, but in the lives of those we say we love. Hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to what is good. That's the the third there, exhortation. And I quoted this last time we looked at that. Holding on tightly to that which is right becomes a necessity in view of our natural inclination to fall back into sin. 
Huh? Hold on tight to what is good. And beloved, we talked about this. Let the word, not the world, define for you what is good. Huh? Because the world has its own definition of what is good. And I think I should just say it again. I've said it before a couple of times, but remember, the world says a good time on a Friday night is getting drunk. That's a good time. That's the world. And when I say that, I'm speaking to people who probably on Friday night, some of you, did just that. Or maybe Saturday. I don't know. Beloved, that's not good. That's not good. The world says that's good. That is not good. That's wickedness. That's sin. And that will ruin you in the end. Hold fast to what is good. I'm just, listen. If you're coming week after week and you're, you're hearing me, you know, preach through these things, explain explain these things you're looking at and you've and if you've been doing that then you've heard us read hold fast to what is good now many many times but then you walk out of here and you don't do it what are you doing what do you ask yourself i'm asking what are you really doing then you gotta ask yourselves what's going on in my heart if god's goal for my life is to be conformed to the image of christ and really this is christ's likeness right if that's his goal, then it should be my goal. Then why aren't I doing this? Because it's not your goal, beloved. That's why. If that's what's going on, it's clearly not your goal. You've got stuff going on in your heart. Self-worship, other stuff going on. You're not worshiping God. You're worshiping you. You need to repent. You need to repent. Don't walk away from this and go, yeah, yeah, I learned some stuff. You're coming to hear the word of God so that you might let it have its way with you. How many times have you heard me say that? Let it have its way. Don't let the world have its way with you. Let the word of God have its way with you. And beloved, you as a Christian can do that. The spirit of God is prompting you to do that. It's motivating you to do that. It even empowers you to do that very thing. To hear the word, to understand the word, and then bring your life under it. Submission to it. Let the Spirit of God do its work. It's an awesome work. It's a sanctifying work. How about this next one? Love one another with brotherly affection. That means we are to be marked by a devotion that is characteristic of a loving, close-knit, and mutually supportive family. That should characterize us as the body of Christ. If it doesn't, then we must repent. And we must love one another with this affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. The end of verse 10. That means be eager to esteem or bestow value upon your brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, this is all review. Quickly. Do not be slothful in zeal. Don't become lazy in your Christian life or in your pursuit of carrying out the Lord's revealed will for your life. Don't be lazy. Don't allow yourself to become complacent in these matters. The consequences are devastating if you do. Not just for you, beloved, but for the body. You get me? Listen, if Bob over here, there is no Bob over here, I think I'm just using a name, but if Bob over here decides to become slothful in his zeal in serving the Lord, 
It will have an impact on the body of Christ. It will have an impact on this section and this section as well. It will impact us negatively. We are one. So as one member enters into sin or begins to allow their life to run off course, it doesn't just impact them. It impacts the entire body. Be fervent in spirit. Be on fire for the Lord. I said this before. There's lots of things that people are on fire for. Really excited about. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying that's bad or anything, but I'm saying of all the things that you can be excited about, that you should be like crazy, crazy, madly in love with and, and giving yourself to, it should be the Lord. Okay? It should be the Lord. People get all worked up, you know, about football coming back into season. I cannot wait, I cannot wait. And as it gets closer, they're all, and, and again, I'm not, that's not bad. I love football. It's not bad. But I'm just wondering, do you, 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 does that run through, those thoughts run through your mind when it's Friday and you're like, man, I cannot wait to be at church on Sunday. I'm so fired up. It's getting so close. It's one day closer. Going to be with the people of God, hearing the word of God, singing praises to God. You go, that's funny, Jeremy. But I'm, I'm being now serious. I'm being serious. I'm being funny, but I'm being serious too. If that's not going on in your heart, there's something wrong, beloved. I'm saying there's something wrong. You need to look in. What's going on? Who are you living for? Are you living for him? Or are you living for you? Are you living for the world? Or are you living for God and his kingdom that is to come? Next, serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. So Paul tells us into verse 11. The word serve translates a Greek word that refers to the service of a slave. Beloved, the Lord is our master. Okay? He's our savior. He's our redeemer. He is our friend. But he is also our master. And as such, his will for our lives must be the priority for our lives or of our lives. Beloved, is his will for your life the priority of your life? Ask yourself those questions. As we go through these things, ask. Otherwise, nothing changes. You just kind of come, you hear, you walk out, but nothing changes. That's a tragedy. We are not our own, beloved, but we have been bought with a price. Every born-again believer in here has been bought with a price. We belong to Christ, and therefore we owe our allegiance and full devotion to him. You hear me? We owe it to him. We owe our lives. He purchased them that we might give our lives to him. It's not a choice. It's not like, you know, maybe one day, Lord, I know you saved me, but, um, you know, I might get serious about this whole Christian thing and give my life to you. What are you talking about? If you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, you need to recognize this. Your life is his life. Now get in line with it. Get in line with it. He owns you. His expectation is that you will live for him. He's commanding you to do that very thing. And he has empowered you to do it. Next, rejoice in hope. Look forward to and rejoice in the certain glory that awaits us as children of God, as, as followers of Jesus Christ. Another command, be patient in tribulation. 
Don't cave in or collapse, beloved, under the, the pressures of this life, but Paul calls us to persevere and stand firm through them. And how are we going to do that? In our own strength? No. In the power of the Spirit of God that dwells inside of us as believers of Jesus Christ. That's how we're going to do it. Thomas read about it this morning in Acts, right? These guys, man, they're facing persecution. Ultimately, they faced death. Some were martyred, killed. Did they cave? Did they collapse? No. No, they, they stood firm. Continued to preach the gospel. Continued to stay true and faithful to the mission that God had called them to. And oh, by the way, calls us to as disciples of Jesus Christ. The mission is not complete, beloved. It's not over. You remember that time when George Bush got on the... Uh, Back when we were having the Gulf War and they made a big deal of this, he got on the airliner, he said, mission accomplished. And they're like, mission accomplished? And he really got a, a big razzing for that. What do you mean mission accomplished? We're still in a battle and so on and so forth. I think the church, in some cases, thinks mission's accomplished. It's a done deal. It's not a done deal. The mission is still ongoing. Okay? We are called to something. To make Jesus Christ known to a lost and dying world. Not only through proclaiming the gospel, but living out that gospel transforming life as thomas was saying which is really what we're talking about this morning be constant in prayer prayer must be a priority for us every day and throughout each day it is not optional okay it's not optional prayer is not optional but it's mandatory for the believer beloved god has called us as the church to accomplish impossible things to lead people out of darkness and into light. To be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. But he makes those impossible things possible. And he does that in part, beloved, through prayer. Through prayer. So we got to be praying. we got to be a praying people. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And that's the next exhortation there. In the text, to the best of our ability, we should be willing to help or assist our brothers and sisters in Christ when they truly have a need or a true need. Next, seek to show hospitality. We should welcome others into our homes and use that opportunity to serve, support, and encourage them. Hospitality. And last week, bless and do not curse those who persecute you. Actually, that wasn't last week. That was a few weeks ago. And that is we are to have a loving attitude toward our persecutors, refusing, refusing to have ill will toward them, and instead desiring and wishing God's very best for them, even praying for them, that God might transform them, that he might redeem them, that he might save them. That's what we're called to do. Love, are you serious? Yes, yeah, I'm serious. That is what we're called to do. But that, the Christian life is radical in that sense. It's radical because it shouldn't look anything like the world or how the world would respond to the very same situation. If the world's persecuted, what do they do? Strike back, kill, mutilate, revenge, do all that, right? Every movie in Hollywood has some kind of theme of that nature. Gotta, gotta get them back for what they did to me. That's right. No, that's not. That's the world's thinking. Christianity calls us to something entirely different. It's supernatural living. It's it's spirit-empowered living. It is Christ-likeness. Right? Christ hanging on the cross. His persecutors there. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Wow. That's radical. That's radical. And last time we looked at verse 15, 
And that was where we left off. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Weep with those who weep. And I, I read this quote to you, and it was this, that love never stands aloof or removed or distant from other people's joys or pains. Love rather identifies with them, sings with them, and suffers with them. Love enters deeply into their experiences and their emotions, their laughter and their tears, and feels solidarity. Solidarity. Remember that word, solidarity. I told you it was unity. Unity. But here's a better definition of solidarity, a more full one. It's, it's mutual agreement and support. And I'm telling you this for the text that we're about to look at in a second. It's mutual agreement and support. It is harmony of interest and responsibilities among individuals in a group. Solidarity. As I said last time, Paul's exhortation to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep is really just another manifestation of the genuine love that you and I are to have for one another as the family of God. Quoting again from last time, God's will, beloved, one writer says, God's will is that his children become a family where the joys of one becomes the joys of all and the pain of one is gladly shared by all the others. Solidarity. The Christian experience is not one person against the world, but one great family living out together the mandate to care for one another. Remember we talked about roadblocks to that command, roadblocks to that command, things that get in the way of rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. Do you remember what one of those were? Envy? Self-centeredness? Remember, I started with self-centeredness. I talked about envy, but remember self-centeredness? That's really the biggest one, the biggest. It's sin. It's self-centeredness is sin. Okay? But self-centeredness says, I mean, self-centeredness causes us to be so, just so consumed by our own self-interest that we either aren't even thinking about anybody else, we're not caring about anyone, anyone else, or if we are made aware of their joys or their sorrows, we don't got time for that. I mean, I give my, all my time to me. So I don't, I don't have time for you and your problems. Or even in your rejoicing, I don't, whatever. And then envy, envy's another sin, right? So envy, I think I defined that for you. That's that resentful or unhappy feeling of wanting somebody else's success or an advantage enjoyed by another. So we see another brother and sister rejoicing in something, some event that's occurred in their life, some good thing, and and maybe, maybe we're disadvantaged in that area. Maybe things aren't going so well for us in that particular area. So, I mean, it could be anything. It could be job or, or children or marriage or work or whatever. And so because of envy, instead of rejoicing, we resent our brothers and sisters in Christ. And God has called us to something very different than what the world's normal behavior is or, or reaction is to such things. Because that's what the world does, beloved. Envy and self-centeredness, that's what characterizes them. That is not to characterize us. Okay? We are to rejoice. And then we talked about weeping with those who weep. Listen, love that is genuine will bring us, as one writer says, will bring us to identify so intimately with our brothers and sisters in Christ that their sorrows will become ours. That their sorrows will become ours. That's, that's real love. Have you experienced that outside of the body of Christ, but maybe just in your own family? Maybe this is most easiest, I think, for us to identify maybe with our children. 
Our children are, maybe they're broken or they're sorrowful. And not, not because they got caught or something, you know what I'm talking about, doing some sin, but something bad really happened to them. And then immediately, what happens in your own heart and soul? You're broken. You, you, you're there. You identify them with them so closely. They're your flesh and blood that their pain then becomes your pain. And really, that is what Paul has called us to. There is a love. There's supposed to be a love in the body of Christ that's so real, so genuine. I identify so closely with my brothers and sisters that when they are hurting, when they're in pain, that I am in pain. And you go, well, I'm, I don't ever feel that. Well, you need to ask yourself some questions then. And a lot of times it's self-centeredness. Maybe it's lack of love. Maybe you're not even born again. I don't know. A lot of people walking around thinking they're born again because someone told them, you're a Christian because they prayed some prayer, you know, 20 years ago when they were, you know, seven years old and nothing's really changed in their life. But you're a Christian. No, you're... Probably not. Nothing's changed in your life. There's no, been no transformation. You have no desire to really live for the Lord. You're just kind of doing your own thing. Why would you think you're a Christian? Romans 12, 16. Wow. 12, 16, and here we are. And we're just going to look at this one, and now we're picking up where we left off. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And Paul says this in verse 16. Live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. That's the verse we're going to look at this morning. I believe that the, the different exhortations that are here in verse 16, they're all related to one another, which I'm going to explain later. And the first exhortation or command is that believers are to what? What does it say? Live in harmony with one another. That is how the English Standard Version, that's what we use here, the ESV, the NIV, New International Version, and the NET, another good translation, a Bible translation made available on the internet, NET. That's how they all translate the Greek text there, live in harmony with one another. But you may have another Bible translation. For instance, the New American Standard Bible, another great translation, or the New King James Bible, which a lot of people have used uh, over the years. They translate 16a this way, be of the same mind toward one another. Be of the same mind toward one another, which is actually very close to a literal translation of the Greek text or the language that this letter was originally written in. However, what Paul intends here in this context by using that particular statement or what he is specifically telling the Christians in Rome to do, and us by extension, by telling them to be of the same mind toward one another, is, I believe, best reflected or communicated in how the ESV has chosen to translate the text. That is, live in harmony with one another. So we're going to run with that translation. We're going to use that translation and you'll see here the idea that I think is being communicated and why the ESV picks up the idea of harmony is because it's the idea of an agreement or living in agreement. Uh, this will hopefully make sense as we move through the process here. So live in agreement or live in harmony is that same idea, be of the same mind toward one another. 
So relying on that translation, let's take a closer look at that first exhortation, live in harmony with one another. And we'll do that just by considering the word harmony. Harmony. What is harmony? Let me define it for you in case you don't know what it is. Here's some definitions of harmony. The pleasing combination of musical sounds. Now, as we're going through this, remember that Paul is calling us to, I believe a good, it's a good translation, to live in harmony with one another. So, the pleasing combination of musical sounds. So, is the idea that we all make musical sounds and then we bring them together to make something that's probably not, right? But that is a definition of harmony, but... Watch, it'll apply here in a second. Here's, a, here's one that I think more applies right to relationships or specifically to the context of the church. The quality of forming a pleasing and consistent whole. The quality of forming a pleasing and consistent whole. That's harmony. Or a pleasing arrangement of parts. Or pleasantness in arrangement. Or the word accord is another way to define harmony. And accord means agreement. Agreement. So here's the idea. You take various things, different things, they're placed together, they're united together, and they're forming a consistent whole or reflecting agreement or unity. And unity is uh, oneness. Oneness. So you have a bunch of different things coming together and forming a unity or a oneness or a consistent whole. By the way, unity is a condition of harmony. Unity is a condition of harmony. It is necessary. If there is no unity, there is no harmony. It's not possible based on the definition of harmony. Now, examples of the use of the word harmony would include, for instance, a book I have. Maybe you have this book or you've heard of it. It's called A Harmony of the Gospels. A Harmony of the Gospels. How many of you have heard of that book or something of that nature or even that discussion? A few of you. Okay, so what is that? Well, it is a book that takes all the information and details that we have from the four different Gospels. Four different Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And brings them together into one book for the purpose of showing that there is agreement or harmony or one unified story or consistent whole. That is a harmony of the Gospels. You get the idea? So we have four different accounts of the life, birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, ascension. We have four different accounts. A harmony of the Gospels brings them all together. And when it does, it... It harmonizes them, or we, in that we find agreement, or a wholeness, or a unified story. Okay, and it helps you understand that. That it's basically telling one story, but different parts of the story. Different aspects of it. That's one way of thinking of harmony, or how the word's used. Another way the word harmony is used is to refer to what a person does in a band. When they harmonize, or sing harmonies. How many of you are familiar with that? Harmonize or sing harmonies, okay? Now, I asked uh, Thomas about this to make sure I didn't mess this up. But they, uh, they sing a note that is different from the melody of the song that complements or provides momentum or richness to the melody, creating a pleasant sound or a unified sound or a consistent whole. You get me here? You get where I'm going with this? I'm, try I'm trying to give you examples because I want to bring this over into the body here in a moment. I'm trying to give you examples. So 
when someone is not singing in harmony, what, what occurs? What do you know right away? It sounds horrible. It doesn't sound good. There's certainly not a... Con- there's so- this is not good. This, is, this isn't... Con- they're conflicting with one another. This is not beautiful. This is not a unified whole. None of that. It's not consistent, right? Okay. Here's another example for you ladies. Women generally want their outfits or what they wear to be harmonious. And they often say to their men, you know that doesn't match, right? Uh, that shirt does not go with those pants. So, so here's the idea. You can apply it to that situation too. Basically, they're saying there is no agreement between the two, between your shirt and your pants or pants or shoes or whatever. They are in conflict with one another. This is very important to ladies. Uh, basically, that is an unharmonious outfit. An outfit that does not reflect a consistent whole or unity. It is displeasing to the eyes because of that reason. Okay? And there's actually a lot of art that goes into this. Uh, designers look to create harmonious outfits. Outfits that, even though there may be different elements of the outfit, they're all kind of coming together to form a unified whole or a oneness that's pleasant. There was a song titled Ebony and Ivory. It was a number one single by, anybody know? No, I'm so good. I have some people in here who know, lived through the life I live. So, yes, Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder. It was released in 1982. The song reached number one on both the United, in the United Kingdom and the U.S. charts. It was the, if you don't know, it was the fourth biggest hit in 1982. Do you remember the, oh, why are you bringing that up? Because you remember the word, the lyric of, of that song? It went like this. If you know it, you can sing it with me. It's okay. <laughs> Ebony and ivory live together in perfect Side by side on the... Oh, Lord. Oh, you guys. You really let me down there at the end. I had strength for a second. And I know I can't sing, but it doesn't matter. I'm just using it as an illustration here. Why don't we? Right, so what, what was the song? Okay, so Ebony Ivory. There's black and white on the keyboards. That's what it's referring to. Uh, if you don't know, Paul McCartney is white, <laughs> and Stevie Wonder is black, okay? And so they, they came together to compose this song. What was, what was the message they were trying to send? Unity, racial harmony. Racial harmony. Just differences, but coming together as one cohesive whole, right? So that's kind of what the song was getting at. But sometimes people kind of think of harmony, and they just think this way. They think the idea of just getting along. Just kind of, can we all just get along? Even in the idea of racial harmony, which really is not what that, harmony, if we're using the word harmony, that's really not what that would mean. Just getting along. In the context of relationships, harmony is more than that. It includes, beloved, besides just getting along, it includes the idea of living together in a unified way or as a pleasing and consistent whole. That's harmony. That's harmony. Living united as one. There is no, if there is no unity, there is no real harmony. That's the point I'm trying to make with you right now. Unity, as I told you, is a condition of harmony. 
I find it helpful sometimes to get out of word, what a word means by just looking at its antonyms. One of the antonyms, that's the opposite, uh, means the opposite of the word you're looking at. So one of the antonyms for, for harmony is discord. Discord. Okay? So Paul calls us to what? Live in harmony with one another. The opposite of living in harmony with one another would be discord. Discord. What is that? That's lack of agreement or harmony. That's the definition of it. As between persons or things or ideas. It's disagreement or strife between people or incompatibility or conflict between things or situations. Also, discord, because we were talking about it, can be defined as a combination of musical sounds that strikes the ear harshly. That's discord in the musical realm. Or a, a harsh or unpleasant sound. Okay? Because that's what happens when you don't have harmony. And you have discord. It's unpleasant. Beloved, although it sometimes, uh, sometimes the church is, or can be, or live in, or uh, be guilty of discord, it should never be that way. It should never be that way. Rather, the church of God is, is called to live in harmony with one another. That's what, Paul's, that's what Paul's talking about, and that's who he's speaking to here in this context. It is the church. And beloved, you can take this outside of the church right away and apply it to your own relationships outside the church, like, for instance, your marriage. Your marriage. It would apply there as well. We're to live in harmony with one another inside of our homes, with our spouses, but living in harmony means then as the church we are to form a pleasing and consistent whole. We are to, we are to reflect unity, a common purpose. We are not, beloved, then to live in strife or conflict or disagreement. We are not. In fact, we're called by the scriptures to resolve any conflict or disagreement or strife that we might have with one another, right? Why do you think that is? Because we are to live in harmony with one another. So not resolving conflict and strife is, is then choosing to live in discord. Choosing not to obey the command here that Paul gives us to live in harmony. We are, if you will, beloved, we are to come together as one body and produce a pleasant sound. We are to make beautiful, harmonious music together. Music that is not harsh, but pleasant to God's ears. And, beloved, you know, you know what that requires? It requires love. It requires love. It requires deference, being able to defer to others, not have to always have your way. It requires a spirit of cooperation. It requires, as I said, a self-sacrificing love. It requires a commitment to and a spirit of unity. It requires all of that if we are to live in harmony with one another. Let me say it this way. Our relationship with one another in the body of Christ is to be a harmonious relationship or a relationship that exhibits or displays accord or agreement or unity or a state of oneness. Our relationship with one another as Christians should properly and beautifully reflect a common bond, a common salvation, and a unified purpose and hope in Christ. We are to live in harmony with one another. You know why there are church splits? Sin, but discord. 
they do not obey this command. Because in order to live in harmony with one another, when you get out of harmony, what do you got to do? Huh? Resolve it. Resolve it, right. So like, you know, if it happens up here, no, 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 no. See, Thomas do this, no, 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 no. That's not in harmony. That's not, I don't think he does it that way, but I'm just saying as an example. But what do they got to do? They, they got to make a change. They got to adjust. They got to come into agreement with their other brothers and sisters up here on the stage or with that melody or that note. They gotta, they're seeking that unified whole, that consistent whole. Now, here's the connection with the rest of verse 16. Since unity is a condition of harmony, okay, and it is, unity is a condition of harmony, and since the biggest barrier to unity in the body of Christ is pride, Paul, as he's done before several times, I believe now warns his readers against sinful pride. I think that's the connection. I don't think these are like separate, completely on their own, unique exhortations apart from one another. I think they're connected. He's thinking about this. So look back at chapter 12, verse 16. Paul says this, live in harmony with one another. And then immediately he says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. As one writer put it, pride sows the seeds of discord. Pride in the church sows the seeds of conflict, of, an, of, of discord, of a strife. One writer says this concerning Paul's exhortation. He says this, Our overly exalted opinion of ourselves, leading us to think that we are always right and others wrong, and that our opinions matter more than others, often prevents the church from exhibiting the unity to which God calls her. And as a result, there is bickering and quarreling and unnecessary conflict and then bitterness and resentment and so on and so forth and ultimately a disillusion of the church. By the way, this is the same exact thing that happens in marriages. Unfortunately, who refuse to live in harmony with one another, the two spouses. Pride sets in and sows the seeds of discord. Now, after saying do not be haughty, I got to finish and I will here quickly. Do not be haughty, Paul adds this, but associate with the lowly. But associate with the lowly. Now, Bible scholars inform us that the Greek text that is typically translated, that very thing, associate with the lowly, could also be translated, do lowly things, or give yourselves to humble tasks. And you'll even see there, if you're using the SV Bible, and maybe even your own Bible, there'll be a little number there, and you look down at the bottom, and it'll note that, that it can be translated that way, or maybe accept humble duties that that might be what Paul is saying. And if that's the case, he's not referring to people but things, and he might be doing that as an antidote to pride. In other words, don't be proud, but do humble things to humble your proud heart. He might be saying that. But if he is referring to people associated with the lowly, and that's a, it's a reference to people, as it is stated uh, in our ESV and in most translations, then he might 
be speaking of this, and I like what one writer says. He says this, as a means to attaining this harmony, the very harmony that Paul has called us to in the beginning of the passage, live in harmony with one another. As a means to that, Paul stresses the necessity of rejecting the temptation to think high thoughts about oneself as though one were a superior breed of Christian and of coming down off the perch of isolation. I'm up here and you people, low people are down there and mingling with people of a, quote, low position or mingling with those. Maybe it means a humble frame of mind. You can even just refer to their disposition to the fact that they are humble. They have a humble frame of mind. The point is, as one writer says, there is uh, no aristocracy in the church. There is no aristocracy in the church. How many of you use that word? None of you probably. But aristocracy is like a, it's like a small privileged class. There is no small privileged class in the church. No place for, as the writer says, an elite upper crust. There's no harmony in that because there's no unity in that. That's not one cohesive, solid, whole, unified, moving in the same direction. That's, you got these and these over here, and there's division and conflict. That's high school all over again. That's all that is. So, I think Paul is just calling them to repent of any arrogance or snobbery, because that is a roadblock to unity, and it makes it impossible then to live in harmony. And finally, in verse 16, Paul uses the same phrase that he used in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. And he used it there, hoping to keep the Gentile Christians, you might remember as we went through that section, he was hoping to keep the Gentile Christians from feeling superior toward the Jewish people. There was reasons for that, and I'm not going to go into all that right now. And he says, lest you be wise in your own sight, in verse 25. And then he, he explains why they shouldn't be wise in their own sight. Here, Paul doesn't say, lest you be wise. He says, never be wise in your own sight. Or another way to put it, and I told you this before, never be conceited. Don't be conceited, people. And, you know, we're conceited because of pride, self-importance, and arrogance, and everything else. And so, commenting on that, one writer just says this, why he would throw that in. And don't be conceited, he said this, unless they consent to do what he just told them to do, that's associate with the lowly, while still retaining heady notions of their own superiority, Paul puts in a final thrust, don't be conceited. Don't be conceited. So the idea is this. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll associate with the lowly, but they're still under me. They're still under me. I'm still above them. I'm still superior to them. Really? That wasn't the point at all. So just in case you missed it, don't be conceited, Christian. Don't be conceited. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Conceit has no place, as one pastor says, conceit has no place in the life ruled by love. Ruled by love. And remember, that's how this all started. Let love be genuine. It has no place. You know the passage, 1 Corinthians 13, 4, right? Paul says this when he's defining love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant. Not arrogant. Beloved, may we honor the Lord by living in harmony with one another, and may we continually repent of the sinful pride that works against that very thing.
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its transforming effect that it has in the lives of believers who hear it and respond to it in faith, believing it to be true and good, believing it to be what they should bring themselves under, and therefore, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they do that very thing. Father, I thank you for it. It, it can have that impact on us, but if, if we just hear it and then walk away from it, just walk away. Forget everything we just heard. Just don't apply it. Don't think it through. Don't ask ourselves questions. Is this me? Am I living in conformity with this passage or not? And if I'm not repenting and, and, and getting ourselves right with you in this area, then, Father, then it has no transforming effect. Just words bouncing off of us, going in one ear, out the other. Father, may that not be true of us. May that not be true of Summit Bible Church. Father, I plead, I, I ask, may that not be true. May you powerfully work through your spirit, even now, right now, to convict, to bring conviction, which is a good thing, Father. It is a, a, a gift. Conviction is a gift. And not only with that conviction, but bring a, a soft and, and repentant heart, not a proud heart, a stubborn heart, a heart that says, I know I'm doing wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. No, Father, may you break our hearts. May they be broken for you, that we might live for you. That we might repent of sin, repent of wickedness, repent of evil, repent of anything that dishonors you, that displeases you. And might we latch on to your goodness, to the truth that we find in your word, and especially here, just right here in Romans 12. Father, may our lives be characterized by these things. May we be in pursuit of these things. May we be living to live in obedience to you. Father, may that be true of us. May you make it true of us. I ask for our sakes. And I ask for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.